Good morning, everybody. Yeah. You guys all okay there this morning? Are you all with us? Are you all aware, alert? Okay. All right. Um, yeah. Daddy is just getting it. Um, most of you know I have three kids. Parker is in first grade. Sophie is uh, going to be going to kindergarten, second year preschool, and Noah Noah's Noah. He's uh, almost two. Um, I'm growing as a parent that um, there's certain aspects of parenting, boy, that, that, that's bringing our relationship with our Heavenly Father and that dynamic into a whole different light. Um, this past uh, Friday, my son, my son uh, Parker, was in the spelling bee. He was representing his first class, first grade, and uh, there were like 16 kids that was in his school. And Jenny and I are, of course, very proud of the fact that he was representing his class and, and so on and so forth. And so Jenny and I took some time off from work and went to the spelling bee. Um, and there we were, you know, uh, in, the, in the audience and all classmates are there and there's 16 kids up front. And uh, it was between first and second graders and third and fourth graders had their own first and second graders and 16 kids. And I've never been so nervous in my life. I've never been so nervous in my life, you know, and, and I'm sitting there, and honestly, the first thought that's going through my mind is, Parker, please don't be the first one to go, you know, <laughs> honestly, and he's a bright kid, he's a bright kid, you know, and, and so um, the thing starts, and, you know, the words, and, and, and they're, you know, the little kids, so cute. little kids are like, uh, may I have the definition, please, or can you use it in a sentence? <laughs> the word is cut, cut. Mm, may I have the definition, please? Okay. Uh, and I'm going, the definition is even more confusing than that word. Anyway, so where's it going? And one by one, the kids are, you know, dropping. Yeah, getting caught. One by one. And it was just Parker and one other kid left. Now, by now, I'm like, like my palms are like dripping. You know, Jenny's sitting there. And, 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 and I am a nervous wreck. And I'm a nervous wreck. And, 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 and I'm just, to be completely honest, I'm going, I hope he wins it. But if he doesn't, I want to be able to encourage him and say, you did great anyway, Parker, right? I, I, that's, that's the thought that's going through my mind. And so sitting there, and, and there's the two of them, and so the word comes. And, 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 and the word was continent. Yeah. To which my son goes, may I have the definition, please? <laughs> I'm not even kidding, right? So the word gives a definition for the word continent. Can you use it in a sentence, please? Okay. He misspells it. And then the other kid comes, and you guys know how the spelling works, right? He has to, what, spell two words correctly, right? He spells the first word right. He blows the second word. Like, yes, we're still alive. We're still alive. Parker comes up. Comes up. He blows the word again. I'm not exaggerating. The second kid comes up. He gets the first word. He blows the second word again. We're sitting there, nervous wreck, nervous wreck. Long story short, Parker misspelled the word. The kid got the two words, and, you know, Parker came runner up. And afterwards, we gave him a big hug, took him to ice cream, went to scooters, and he gets on Belmont. Had a great time. I'll tell you why I share that, because the whole time I was sitting there, and I couldn't help but feel this enormous swelling sort of a pride 
Not just at the fact that he spelled the words correctly, but honestly, the effort. And even when he got it wrong, it wasn't, oh! But even when I got it wrong, there was this thing in me that just swelled with enormous pride that said, that's my son. This sermon sees what we've been talking about. See, many of us have this picture of our Heavenly Father. You and I blow it, right? Yes? Again, I did all that. Some of us blew it last night. It's that. Right? We have this enormous thing with our God where he's just angry and wrathful and judgment and all that stuff. But here's what we often neglect is the small victories. I can't tell you. There's a new perspective. Small victories where we fall and we get up. I think our Heavenly Father swells with enormous cosmic pride and he goes, that's my boy. That's my son. The truth of the matter is many of you and I, we're harder on ourselves, I think, than God is. <laughs> Do you know why? Because we fail to understand what we've been talking about in this sermon series through Romans 6 and 8. We've been saying from, the, by the way, I had a couple of people who emailed me, and, and I love, by the way, just feedback and, and you know, what God is doing to you. A couple of people are like, you sound angry. Why do you sound angry? <laughs> I, I'm not angry. The reason why I sound like I'm angry is because I am passionate about the fact that you and I get the truth. Amen? Because many of us fail to understand what it is that God did for us, and so we live these defeated, worn-out, just lives. And Satan has a field day and he goes, I've got them exactly where I want them. And I'm angry and bad. I am at Satan and his ability to get you and I completely believing in this truth. That does get me fired up. Some of you are in you this morning and without saying anything, haven't done anything, you just feel condemned. You feel like a loser. You feel like you're just that. And the reason is you do not understand that when Christ died for you and rose again, you were so identified with him that everything that happened to Christ happened to you. That means that no matter what you did last night, plan to do next week, today, right now, you stand before God uncondemnable. You stand before God blameless. You stand before God pure, sinless. Today, right now, God looks at you and he goes, I see you as perfectly righteous. But you don't believe it. I don't believe it. We think that the determining factor in our relationship with God is not Christ's past, Christ's present, and Christ's future. We think that what determines our relationship with God is our past, our present, and our future. And so, we sit here this morning just going, I'm such a loser. You guys, that's why I sound angry. I sound mad because I am just angry and mad at the lies that Satan has just believed. Now, the reality is many of you hear this and you go, Peter, that's wonderful news, but, and here's the but, right? But, why is it so hard? Anybody? <laughs> why does it take so long? Anybody? <laughs> and how does it work? Anybody? The good news is the Bible answers those questions. And here's the fundamental, listen very carefully. We're in Romans 7 today. 
The Bible explains and describes the Christian life in terms of this already and not yet experience. Do you hear that? The already and the not yet of the Christian life. What do it mean? The Bible says that you are already justified, already not condemned, already legally righteous before God, already blameless before God. The Bible says you are already Already set free from the power of sin, set free from the rule and reign of sin. The Bible says you are already in faith, able to grow and mature, already. But the Bible says you and I are not yet, what, perfected in our daily experience. Can anybody relate to that? The already and the not yet? You and I are already, but not yet. And Paul talks about this dynamic a lot in the New Testament. Here's an example. Philippians chapter uh, where are we? Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also, for which I was also laid, for which also, it's just a weird way of writing it, for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. You see the already and the not yet dynamic in this. Paul says, you are in Christ already perfect. You are already perfectly perfect. Righteous, as far as God is concerned, I am telling you, you and I stand before God perfectly. I, I, I just, I say it, and Holy Spirit needs to do it, because I can't. As far as God is concerned, when God sees you, he considers, treats you as you're perfectly righteous in Christ. But Paul says, I still need to what? Press on. Knowing that God is at work in me, in the already, not yet. So I press on. I press on. Listen very carefully. Paul's going to describe today in Romans 7 this battle that you and I experience every day of the already and the not yet. It's almost like there's two selves, the two, the old you and the new you. And this is the whole thing of where we're going today. The Bible says that the difference between the battle that is fought in the old you and the baddest fought between the new you could not be more different. The battle, the battle that you and I fight before Christ comes into our lives and makes us new, the battle be- that is a battle that we cannot win. But when Christ comes into our lives and makes us new, even though there is battle, that is a battle that you cannot lose. The battle that is fought. You, some of you know experience what this means, right? Before you become a Christian, the battle that is fought internally between the already not yet, the battle between your old sin and your nature, that battle is a battle you cannot win. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Christ comes into your life. There's a battle. (laughs) Where do we get this? When you become a Christian, life gets easier. Life gets better. Things just roll. Where do we get that from? Has anybody in this room experienced that? Has anybody experienced the other, which is when you become a Christian, why does it get harder? Can I get an amen? Why does it become so much tougher? I'll tell you why. When you become a Christian, all of a sudden, you become aware of your sins. You become aware of your imperfections. It's not like they weren't there before. They were there before. You just didn't know. You just didn't care. Not only that, before you become a Christian, here's what you're doing. You look into your left, you look into your right, going, I'm better than her, not better than him, but I'm certainly better than them. 
And you judge yourself and you go, I'm better than most. And you become a Christian and you don't look to the left or right. You look what? Up. And you go, oh, okay. Maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was. Becoming a Christian can be bad for your self-esteem. You know what I mean? (laughs) And the other thing is, listen, you start struggling with things that you didn't know you struggled with before. Anybody? All of us, you go, what, what is this? And here's the thing. It's not that that struggle wasn't there before. You were just serving it. You were just living it. Now all of a sudden you change allegiances and you go, oh, oh. The battle that you fight before you become a Christian is a battle you cannot win. The battle that you fight after you become a Christian is a battle you cannot lose. Here's the key. But this battle cannot be fought. By the way, the 99% of us fight, which is, I'm going to pull myself up by both straps. I'm going to pray a little bit more. I'm going to read the Bible. You cannot, you know of yourself, overcome this battle. Romans chapter 7 is one of these most confusing and rich passages in all the Bible. I don't claim to explain it well. I'm going to try in the next two, three weeks. We could spend a year on Romans 7. We could spend two, three weeks. We're going to spend two, three weeks on Romans 7. How many of you actually did what I asked you to do, which is read Romans 7? Three people. Great. (laughs) Here's the reason why I asked you to do that. It's because if you read it and you come, I am telling you, you'll hear the sermon differently. Meditate on it. We're going to look at Romans. Here's the thing. Romans 1 through 14, 7, 1 through 14, Particularly verses 7 to 14 describes a battle before you become a Christian. Paul, before he was a Christian, a battle he cannot win. Verses 14 to 25 is a after I become a Christian, it's a battle that you, can, you cannot lose. And we're going to look at that right now. Okay, here we go. Today is just an overview. You know, I started working on this. I'm like, overview. And I thought 10, 15 minutes. The overview became an entire sermon. Okay? So here's what I'm going to do. If I do my job well, I'm going to whet your appetite to go, holy cow, there's so much there. There's so much there that you will. You will. A, read Romans 7 for yourself and come on this journey with me for the next two weeks. Today is an overview. Romans 7. So I'm not going to go through every verse. I'm going to go through chunks, give you big perspective pictures, and we're going to go. Here we go. Romans 7 verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law. And when it says the law, he's talking about what? The Ten Commandments. Okay? The ten. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know I did that? Because <laughs> Noah's watching Blue's Clues. Anybody know Blue's Clues? And the guy goes, blues, clear. The Ten Commandments, okay? Ten Commandments, sorry. That's what happens when you become a parent, man. Your entire life revolves around your kids. That's right. Your parents, their lives revolve around you and me. Did you know that? I don't know. I just said that to you, but okay. I, I said that to you because I'm realizing I was a terrible son. So selfish, so self-centered. Anybody? Okay, amen. Only the older people raise their hands. Of course. Okay, here we go. (laughs) Verse 2. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Verse 3. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another son. Now, guys, listen carefully. He's not really talking about marriage. He's using a marriage as a metaphor for our relationship to the law. The law of God, Mosaic, Ten Commandments, okay? Verse 4. 
So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. Verse 5, for when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I'm so glad you're here. Because if you're not a Christian, you're going, can I actually understand what the heck is going on they're talking about? You will understand everything we're going to talk about today. You know what Paul just said right here? Paul said in verse 5, for an unbeliever, for someone who's not a Christian, who has no relationship with Christ, and for some of us who are Christian, talk about the next week. The law, the Ten Commandments, God's revealed law has a greenhouse effect on what's wrong with us. Let me say it again. God's commandments of these are the things, my revealed will for how you will live. When an unchristian hears that, an unbeliever hears that, they don't go, oh, okay, I want to do that. It aggravates a part of them that says, no way. Christians have been fighting to put Ten Commandments in courtrooms. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Do you know why? The Bible says that when a non-Christian looks at Ten Commandments, he doesn't go, oh, I want to obey those things. He looks at those things and goes, oh. Let me give you another example, and then I'll come back to it. Some of us grew up in churches where the law was laid down thick. The entirety of the Christian life was, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. Why? The underlying assumption is you just lay down the law, and they will want to obey it. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Let me give you an illustration. Augustine in Confession says this. He talks about this. When he was a boy, before he was a Christian, he was walking, and he saw a pear orchard, a pear orchard. And he said he went into the pear orchard, took some pears, and walked out, stole it. And he recounts this. He says, when I thought about my experience of why I did that, he said these two things came to my mind. Number one, I wasn't even hungry. I wasn't even hungry. Secondly, he said, even if I was hungry, I don't even like pears. He says, I took it and I threw it to the pigs. He says, what was that? He said, I had no desire to take the pears until somebody came and said, they're forbidden. And then something in me came and said, I want the pears. Don't sit there like you don't know what I'm talking about. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I have no desire to do that until somebody comes and says, you will not do that. Oh, now you just made me want to do it. It's the picture of Noah with the stick in his hand right here. His sister sitting right here. And daddy going, Noah, don't hit her. Noah, don't hit her. What does he do? Bonk. The Bible says that the commandments of God has a greenhouse effect on what's wrong with you and me so that somebody comes and says, don't do it. You and I go, I want to do it. What is that? You know what that is? Do you know that fundamentally you and I have within us, all of us, Christian or not, this attitude that says, nobody tells me how to live. It's not even underneath. (laughs) Some of you, it's right here. Just last night, you said, mom and dad, you don't tell me how to live. Click. God, anybody, 
You don't. Fundamentally, oh, some of us are nicer. Some of us are nicer. We hide it behind religiosity. But deep down inside, there's this thing that says, nobody tells me. I don't. Do you know this about yourself? So the quiet reservation is either A, denial, which I'll get to you in a minute, or B, why is he picking on me this morning? I'll tell you why. It's useless for us to talk about everything. You know, Christian life, lay down the rules. You know why? It doesn't matter how many times you come here and you hear sermons about don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. Because fundamentally, the problem with you and the problem with me is that we want to be God. We want to be our own lords. We want to be our own masters. And fundamentally in us, we say nobody, including God, tells me how to live. And when he does tell me how to live, it doesn't make me want to obey. When he does tell me how to live, I want to do the exact opposite. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> you and I cannot change until you come to grips. I'll get to that. This realization you have fundamentally in you, nobody, and I mean nobody, tells me how to live. Why? You want to be God. The first temptation was, take the fruit. Why? Because if you do, you will be like, yeah. You and I every day, you're going, that's not me. Why are you a control freak? Why are you a control freak? You know why? Because you want sovereignty over your little realm, over your little kingdom. And when God's law comes, it's an infringement on our little sovereignty. And we go, nobody tells me how to live. I'm sorry, is this too personal? You could come to church every single day for 60 years. Unless, A, you're willing to admit that this is you, you will never change. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. <laughs> you guys, you know how we religious Christians do it? Because there's two ways of going, nobody tells me how to live. I always talk about it. It's the irreligious, secular person who goes, God, poo-poo on God. I'm going to do whatever I want to. You know how some of us religious Christians do it? We become really good, really moral, really, 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 really obedient. Why? Then we can go, God, I'm good. You don't tell me what to do. God, I'm going to church obeying. How dare you bring this thing into my life? Why are you angry and upset this morning? I've been good. I'm going to church. Spiritual. I don't, I obey. I don't, I avoid those things. How dare you? You know what you're doing? God, who the heck do you think you are? I'm Lord and Master. By being good. I wish I could get at those moments, hey, man, I am lost. <laughs> I am have a God complex. Yes, that's me. You know what, guys? I love you too much to let you live in denial. Okay, 
Somebody said, thank you. Okay, we're going to go on because I need to go on. Verse 6, but now by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. That verse right there is Genesis to Revelation summarized. Okay, there you go. Verse 7, what shall we say then? I'll come back to that next week. Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive from the law, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Verse 10. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Verse 11, for sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Verse 13, that that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. Let me just say this and then we'll move on. Next we're going to talk about this. There is both in the Bible what we call the law or the commandments of God and the gospel, which is the promises of God. Commandments of God, promises of God. If you and I confuse the two, we are royally screwed up. What do I mean? You and I read the commandments of God in the Bible as they were promises, and we read the promises of God in the Bible as they were commandments. Do you hear what I just said? Can I say that again? Imagine what happens when you go, promises of God, those are the things that I need to do. What? But verse 14, we'll come back to that next week. Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. And then verse 15, every single one of us will be able to relate to what Paul says. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Can anybody relate? (laughs) Thank you. I thought I was the only one. Verse 16, it goes better. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Verse 17, as it is, it is no longer I myself will do it, but it is sin living in me. Verse 18, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I don't want to do. This I keep doing. Can anybody relate? Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me. It does it. Now, listen, guys. There have been bright Christian scholars who said, that's not Paul as a Christian. That's Paul as a non-Christian. First of all, I disagree. I'm not as smart as them, but I disagree. How do I know? Two reasons. Number one, how many of you are Christians and you go, that's me? <laughs> Secondly, when you look at the verb tenses, verses 1 through 14, past tense. Verses 14 to 25, present tense. Verses 7 to 14, I was, were, did. Verses 14 on, I am. Now, what I'm about to say some of you be like, I totally disagree. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. Actually, it's not okay. But I need to say, that's okay. That's okay. Because, because what I'm going to talk about right now, some of you go like, 
I have never heard that in my entire life. Well, in church, well, that's what I'm here for for you. If this is Paul's experience, here's what I want to talk about. How does this both warn and comfort us? First, and this is the epitome of the not yet experience, not yet the reality of the Christian life. First, there's a warning. No one ever gets so advanced in the Christian life that they no longer see their sin. Do you know why people have a hard time with this? Because people go, that's Apostle Paul we're talking about. Paul could not have struggled like that. That's Apostle Paul. Who, who, Paul Apostle Paul, we're talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and then Paul. In our minds, is it not? God the Father, right? If there was a fourth person trinity, this is Paul. And so people go, how in the world can Paul say that? The reason is because many of us in the Christian world think like the people out there. And the people out there think like this. There's a paradigm of good and evil. And it goes something like this. There are very few people who are unbelievably good in the world. They're virtuous. They're just kind. They're altruistic. They're Mother Teresa's handful of people. And then way over here, there are the evil dictators, the genocidal maniacs, the serial killers. And then most of us are somewhere in the middle. Pretty good people, unless you were abused or oppressed. And Paul comes here and says what? I am perfectly righteous. I have obeyed the commandment to the dot. And he says, I am unspiritual. I am filled with sin. Paul blows that paradigm out of many people who go, Paul's a spiritual, you know, he, he, he may have struggled with sin a little bit. You know, he was a Christian, he was a Bible teacher. I mean, we're talking about the apostle Paul. May, may, he's exaggerating. No, Paul says in this text, he's not an image Christian. He says, I am Paul, apostle Paul, unspiritual, filled with sin. How do I say that? You need to understand this. Even in the best of us, even in the most spiritual of us, at the core of our hearts is a capacity for sin, evil, wickedness that you are not even aware of. Do you know this about yourself? Now, here's the thing. Some of us grew up in churches where we're like, oh, no, 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 no. I am new. I am a Christian. Do you know why you're like that? Let me tell you exactly why you're like that. Because if the fundamental approach to your Christian life is one of religion that says, I am good, therefore I'm accepted, you cannot cyclically handle the fact that there's wickedness and sin remaining in you. Paul says, even in the best of us, there is wickedness and sin and tremendous evil. Far greater far worse than we have ever imagined. And many of us, it lies hidden and it's dormant until something comes along and boop! You know what that is? Stress. Boop! Marriage to a difficult person. Boop! I was thinking about this. Mission trips. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I've been on mission trips where I'm like, are you a Christian? What happened to you? It's like we go on mission trips. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You go on mission trips, and these people who are godly Christians become absolute jerks. We're like, what? Mission trips. (laughs) Suffering. Boop. Temptation. Boop. And all of a sudden, we see a part of us that lies dormant. We're like, (gasps) does anybody know? what I'm talking about. Okay, so we're real this morning. We're real. If you're sitting there going, that's a bunch of bull Pete. There's a guy, an indie rock artist named Sophian Stevens, who wrote a book, a book, who wrote a song, who wrote a song. It's a song properly named John Gacy Jr. 
In case you wonder who he is, he murdered like 33 people, buried 27 people underneath his floorboard, right? Sufjan Stevens wrote this song, John Wayne Gacy. And the last line of the chorus says, and in my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. Do you know how you and I deal with this? Repress it. Oh, it's coming up again. Or denial. Oh, no, no. I'm not that bad. No, no. I'm not Mother Teresa. I'm not telling you. Or some of us, pray, 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 pray. Read the Bible, read the Bible. Don't think about it, don't think about it, don't think about it. Don't. Of course, the more you go, don't think about it, don't think about it. Elephant in the room. Oh, I can't stop thinking about it. We try and repress it. We try and repress it. We try and repress it. And it takes certain moments and certain things and events in our lives. And we see this wicked, ugly, sinful thing that just comes up. Can I ask you a question? We're talking about transformation change. For those of you that have tried to deal with this ugly, hideous thing in you, does denial work? Say it. Does denial work? Does repressing it work? Does, I am so ashamed, I'm not going to tell anybody about it. Does that work? Does trying harder to be a good Christian work? The answer is emphatically no. Do you know why it doesn't work? Because the beginning point of transformation is you have to be able to look squarely in the face that ugly, hideous, wicked sin. You have to, Christian, be able to go that ugly, wicked, sinful thing in me, you have to be able to squarely look at it. If you cannot squarely look at it, you will never change. This is why Alcoholics Anonymous is so powerful. In chapter 5 of the big book, they get to this thing called rigorous honesty. Listen to what it says. They, that's those not recover, are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Rigorous honesty is characterized by the complete lack of intent to deceive oneself or anyone else. Do you know what this is saying? You will never grow and change. Until you can look at that evil, wicked sin squarely in the face and go, I'm not turning away. This is part of who I am. Now, here's the thing. That is impossible for you if you do not have courage and security. And the gospel gives you what? The courage and the security. How? The gospel says simultaneously you are evil and wicked. Yup, I am. And yet at the same time in Christ, you are unconditionally loved. Oh, good Lord. Is that good news? Oh! You cannot look at the 
ugliness thing in you. If you're a coward, all of us are. Or you lack security, all of us do. The only thing you can go, I can look at that is if you have courage and security to go, I am secure, I don't have to be afraid. Let me take a look at that. It's by looking at the gospel that says you are wicked and sinful more than you know, but you are more loved and accepted than you dared hope at the same time. Is that good news? Why do you think I preach the gospel every Sunday? It's not so that you can change your behavior. It's so that you can look at the ugliness, wickedness, and sin and go, I can deal with that. And be rigorously honest. I feel like we're in an AA meeting today. Many of you are not rigorously honest with yourself. You're not. I'm not. Why? I'm a coward and I'm insecure. That's why I need the gospel every day to go. Yo, Peter, look at it. I don't want to look at it. Look at it. I don't want to look at it. Oh, that's pretty ugly. Yeah, but Peter, Peter, lift your head up. Lift your head up. Why? I'm not going anywhere, says Jesus. You're secure, man. I love you. This ain't never going to change. Now we got some work to do. Yeah, we do. We begin by saying, that's me, that's you. So many of you are still in denial. You're sitting there going, this is just a bunch of nonsense. <sighs> Holy Spirit, you need to work. Holy Spirit, you need to work. Holy Spirit, you need to work. Are you guys hearing what I'm saying this morning? Say amen. Is, are, you, are you hearing what I'm saying? See, you, listen, it's not if. You will at some point find yourself doing something more cowardly, more cruel, more evil and wicked than you've ever done. Matter of fact, that's why some of you walked away from the church. Because you thought you were a good Christian. And then you did something, you're like, oh, that's me. And you couldn't handle it. And you walked away. I'm telling you right now, Christian, you will. Not if, when. You will do something more cruel, more wicked, more sinful, more wicked than you've dared ever dreamed. And when you do, the only thing that's going to give you the courage and security to go, I'm not going anywhere. I'm working through this. Is if you know the gospel of Jesus Christ in your heart. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? And don't sit there and go, my husband ought to hear this. You need to hear it. You need to hear it. And don't sit there and go, my friend needs to hear it. My mama, my daddy, everybody but me. <laughs> Denial. It's not just a river in Egypt, something like that, right? Anyway. <laughs> Stupid joke, Peter. If you're a non-Christian, you go, oh, this idea of calling, calling yourself... You know, a, a sinner is, 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 is not good for your emotional health. Excuse me. It is the height of emotional health to be able to call yourself a sinner. It is the height of emotional health to go, I am wicked, sinful, jacked up, but I am unconditionally loved and accepted. That's the epitome of emotional health. Thank you. Emotional unhealthy is, I'm okay, you're okay, we're okay. And I'm evil and wicked. Do you hear what I'm saying? Good Lord, I do feel like we're in an AA meeting. Anybody want to get up and go, hi, my name is so-and-so, and I'm pretty wicked. Do we go, welcome, all of us. And here's another thing that's great about this. It doesn't just give you psychological freedom. You know what? It also gives you 
sociological freedom. You know what I mean by that? If this is true for you, you cannot ever look at other people around you and divide them into good people, Republicans. That right there was my wickedness, my sinfulness, my, my judgmentalness coming out. Okay, you saw that, right? We go, good people and fill in the blank. You know why? Because if the gospel really hits you, the only difference between a prostitute, a murderer, and a Republican and you is that the, is that the soil in you, capacity for sin, never got watered and it never sprouted. That's the only difference. Don't walk around going highfalutin, I'm better than... You've got the soil. It just hasn't been watered yet. Janice, is this too much? You know what spiritual maturity is? Spiritual maturity is Paul coming at the end of his life and going, I'm the worst sinner I know. You know why? The closer you get to the light, the more defect you see. The more holy we become, the less holy we will feel. And it's not false modesty, man. C.S. Lewis said, if you ask Hitler, are you a bad man? He would say, no. If you ask Abraham Lincoln, are you a bad man? He'd say to a great degree. Common sense tells you that the better you are, the worse you'll feel. And the worse you are, the better you'll feel. So, can I ask you, are you growing? See, if you read Romans 7, 14, 24, and you go, That's, that can't be a Christian. Mature Christians don't talk like that. I'm telling you, either you are a religious Pharisee to the core, or you're in denial about who you are. The closer to God you get, the more you see your blemishes. The closer you get to the light, the more smudges you'll see. And it's not false modesty or woe is me. No, no, no. A Christian who gets closer to the light and goes, I'm the worst of all sinners. And yet, I am perfectly righteous. Do you have that balance? Is that you? Is that me? Oh, man, that was heavy. That was the not yet, and we're almost done with the not yet. So let's go on to the already part, okay? Verse 21. Verse 21. By the way, we'll come back to this a little bit more next week. Verse 21. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Verse 22. Underline this, memorize this. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. What is Paul saying? This question that you want to face, you know, this, this good nature and bad nature and evil and sin I want to do, but I don't want to do. Paul says, even though that question hasn't been settled, the issue in Christ has been settled. What do I mean? He says, this thing that says, I, don't, I want to do what's... He says, you and I, when we become a Christian, God gives us new wants, new affections, new desires, and the new affection desires delight in God's law. We actually come to a point where we go, God, I want to do your will. Do you hear what I'm saying? The Satan has you believing, I want this, 
And I kind of want this. I kinda, he says, no, that battle is no longer the case for you. If you're a child of God, God has given you new affections, new desires. And the true you and the real you is not caught in this. The true you and the real you actually loves, desires to obey God and wants to do what God wants you to do. I mean, guys, how, how many of you, if I asked you, you did something, you're like, oh, why did I do that? If I asked you, did you really want to do that? Your answer is what? No. Why'd you do it? I don't know. Anybody? Paul's saying, listen, when you became a new you in Christ, he gave you not just a new position, new identity. He gave you new affections and new desires. And that is the true, real you that is at work. Paul goes on to say in Romans 8, 4, a non-Christian cannot desire God. He cannot desire to obey God. Romans 8, 4 or 8, 7. He says the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Why? Because he wants to be God's. He doesn't want anybody telling him what to do. Yes, Christian, listen to me, please. In you and in me, there's still this battle going on of the new you and the old dying dead you. There's this powerful force of sin and rebellion within. But those desires are not desires for sin, desires for disobedience, desire to do that which God doesn't want us to do. That is not the real you. That is not the true you. It is no longer I myself would do it, Paul says, but it is sin living in me. Do you believe this? Is this good news? I don't know what I would do if God had not transformed my heart and given me new affections and new wants and new desires. This is the reason why, if you're a Christian, that sin, oh, it doesn't taste as good as it used to. What happened? What, 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 what happened? I used to love that. What, what happened? Or, yeah, that's kind of foul. That's kind of foul. I know I keep going to it, but man, that's kind of foul. Why? New affections, new desires, the new you, the real you, and the true you. He says, I do not do what I want. What you want to do is what God has placed on your heart. That's the real you. Satan wants you to believe, no, 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 you want this? You want that? You ah, Satan, that part of me, listen, still kicking alive, but it's a husk. It's dead skin. It's mortally wounded. And it's slowly dying. But here's the thing. A wounded bear is more dangerous than a healthy bear. Your old nature was given a death blow at the resurrection. It's in you. This is the reason why some of you, as you're going through the sermon series, I know, you're struggling even more with temptation now. Anybody? You know why? Because the more you desire to follow God, that husk, dead skin, that dying, wounded thing comes alive and goes, oh, no, I'm not going down without a fight. And when that happens, you got to go, that part of me is dead. But I don't believe it. I know. I know. That's why I preach and I pray the whole time I preach that the Holy Spirit. See, some of you, listen. This is the reason why some of you go, you know, Peter, I used to struggle with these old habits, and I became a Christian, and I'm falling back into them. I didn't really change. Oh, no, no. That part of you died with Jesus. And when he rose forever, 
slavery and power to sin was cut off. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? I don't feel like it. Yeah, but you both want to be thin and eat ice cream at the same time too. So we covered that already. You can't trust your feelings. How are you going to trust your feelings as a barometer of truth? I don't feel holy. Well, thank goodness we don't have to depend on your feelings. Because God looks at you and says, perfectly holy. Goodness gracious. Can we go on, you guys? Okay, verse 23. Almost done here. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and waking me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. So here's what Paul's saying. I delight in God's law. The true me, the real me, the new me wants to do what God wants me to do. But the power of sin, the power of sin nature, the power of old me continues to war against me. What is Paul basically saying? Here's where we're going in like three, four weeks of woman's age. He is saying, I in myself, in my strength, cannot obey God. I, in and of myself, cannot live the Christian life. And he comes to the point of going, oh, wretched man I am. You know what he's doing? He's essentially setting the table for Romans 8 when he says, the only way that you can live the Christian life is if Jesus Christ and the person of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you, lives through you, this Christian life for you. He says, you cannot fight this war and battle on your own strength. Pull up by the way, it's trying really hard. The only you can fight this battle is if you realize that it is walking in the Spirit. It is walking in the Spirit. You in and of yourself cannot do it. Do you know why many of us have been falling flat on our faces? Because our view of the Christian life is, God, thank you for saving me. Let me take it from here. And Paul says, Christian life is, God, thank you for saving me. And I can't do every day after either. I know. So I give you the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is saying. Can I say this? The problem for many of us, it's not our despair. It's our lack of it. Can I say that again? Christian, oh, it's unhealthy. The problem with you and I is not our despair. It's our lack of it. It is only when you despair that you will hate sin enough to go, I don't want that. It is only when you despair and go, I am a miserable cosmic failure, this thing called the Christian life. I can't. Oh, wretched man. That is the beginning of transformation. Half of us in this room I'm sorry to say this. You have not despaired enough. I'm not saying you don't suffer injustice. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying in and of yourself, you have not gotten to a point of going, I would rather this. God, I can't take another step. Paul says, oh, wretched man. Are you there yet? Are you there yet? Of course not. I can do it. I'm a good person. That evil, wicked, no, 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 denial, repress. Are you at a point of going, oh, wretched? Because that's the only way you'll go. Then thanks be to God. How in the world can you go, thanks be to God? How in the world can you, tear-inducing, I give my all to you? Thanks be to God, unless you come to a point of going, I am wretched. 
And we live in a culture where a preacher gets up and goes, you're wretched. That's offensive, man. I'm out of here. No, 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 no. Listen, listen. To say I am wretched is the beginning of good news to go, so I need help. You sitting there going, now I'm seeing, Peter, why I haven't changed. I'm not in despair yet. But God loves you enough that he's not going to let you leave there, uh, stay there. Hey, now, yeah, let, let me end with this. Let me end this. Oh, this is so good. And we're going to come back to this. Oh, man. This is why I love the Bible. Because he says what? Verse 24. What a wretched man I am. And then he says what? Next word. Next word what? Next word is what? Who? He doesn't say, what a wretched man I am. What do I need to do? He doesn't say, oh, wretched man I am. What? Spiritual disciplines. What? Sermons. What? Prayer. What? He doesn't even go, how? Oh, wretched man I am. How do I deal with this? How? He doesn't even go, why? Doesn't God deliver me? Why? He says what? What is he pointing to? Jesus. Do you know why you and I grew up in church like so like downcast and beaten up? Because when we came to our oh wretched man I am, all our lives what we heard was what? Here's what you need to do. Or how? Here's how you go about it. You've never heard the good news that says uh-uh, it's what? Say it with me. Oh, tear inducing. I want to jump out of my skinny jeans to, you know, joy. Yes, Carlton, I said it. I said it, man. It's going to be kind of hard to jump out of these skinny jeans, but you know. Is this good news? This is life-transforming kind of stuff. Religion, legalistic churches, all your life. Whoa, what a wretched man I am. Here's what you need to do. Here's how you change yourself. Here's why God didn't. And the gospel says none of that will work. It's who, thanks be to God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Oh, oh. Who? And you know what he you know, he'll say? Who? will rescue me in the midst of. That's not God's plan. God says, I don't want to rescue in the midst of your struggle. He says, I want to rescue from. It's not, I see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's, you're not in the tunnel anymore, honey. It's not, are you going to help me cope? The gospel is not giving you coping mechanism. The gospel is giving you radical freedom. Is this good news? Now, let me tell you something on how this, notice, Paul doesn't, for the answer, look in. He doesn't go, eh. what does he do? Because if you look in, if you, I look in, what do we find? What? Have you looked at you? What, what do we find? Look in for your help. I can do it. I, what? We know where that leads, don't we? He doesn't look in. What does Paul do? He looks up and he looks out. When you look in for peace, you'll never experience peace. Look up and look out. I'll tell you how this came home to me, okay? Let me, and we'll be done with this. This is the way this came home to me. It's given me an entirely different perspective on spiritual maturity. I'm narcissistic when it comes to spiritual maturity. You know what I mean by that? 
I am obsessed with how am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? Anybody else? Can anybody relate? Anyone? We are narcissists when it comes to spiritual maturity. It's like, how am I doing? How have I done? How much victory? I'm, that's, it's me. Me, 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 me. Constant focus on me. And it's self-absorption, all that stuff. And I think I'm being spiritually mature, but it's narcissistic, over-consumed with myself, how I'm doing. Spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is when you stop looking at what you have to do for Jesus and you start looking at what Jesus Christ has done for you. Spiritual maturity isn't this narcissistic, how am I doing and am I growing in what areas? Spiritual maturity is when you stop doing that, that's when you know you're growing. Did you hear what I said? Spiritual maturity is not, this is, spiritual maturity is not obsessing over how you're doing. Spiritual maturity is when you cease to obsess over how you're doing and you begin to delight in what God has done for you. Other ways we say it, spiritual maturity, is when you and I become what? Small. And God becomes big. Listen, 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 listen. Do you know this in your heart? Do you know? I am so stinking self-absorbed, self-preoccupied with everything, including my spiritual life. I focus more on, here are the things I need to do, because I'm a good Christian, you know, and it's all behavioral. Paul, <laughs> end of his life, end of his life, I'm the worst of all sinners. Why? Oh, wretched man that I am. What does that lead to? Who will rescue me? Anybody just tired of living the old Christian life? Anybody? You're tired. You're worn out. I am too. Why? Because that life, it's not the life God intended. It's not. It's not. It's not. You know it. I know it. You know it. I know it. Man that I am, comma, 